You know, this afternoon I really decided to focus the study this afternoon. I, I've given it a couple times, but this study is focused for young people that may be attending college, as well as for the parents of those young people. But make no doubt about it this afternoon, the information we're going to look at, the information we're going to cover, can be easily applied to any of us when discussing the Bible with atheists, with non-believers in the workplace or at school. As all of you know, I attend Texas A&M University there in College Station. I'm in a degree that is called Allied Health. This degree is a very science-intensive degree, and one of the courses I'm in is called Biology 112. I took it about a year and a half ago, uh, which is a class explaining evolution. I knew that going into the class, but I had a very eye-opening experience my first day. I walked into the lecture hall and saw this on the board. It said, Chapter 24, The Origins of Life and Evolution, Why the Bible and Christianity are Simply Incorrect. This guy is obviously an atheist. He was a professor on tenure. Young people here this afternoon, if you have plans on going to college, you will encounter something to this effect. I pray not this extreme, but you will encounter something that contradicts everything you know to be true. You know, after talking to my dad after that lecture, it was pretty obvious I was going to be in for a ride with this guy. This was going to be a tough class. In all honesty, I kind of hoped I could just make it through the class and and not have to deal with it until I got to the first exam. The last question on that first exam said this. It was number 42 on the exam. It said, what is the correct view of the origins of life? A said the presence of a supernatural creator who created life as we know it. B said Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace's theory of evolution. Alfred Russell Wallace was actually the first guy who proposed evolution. Charles Darwin just put the mechanism of natural selection behind it. I missed that question. Obviously, I picked A, which led me straight in to his office to discuss this topic. I argued about how that question was opinionated, how it was unethical and it was wrong to ask a college student such a question. Long story short, he didn't really care, which led me to several discussions based on the origins of life. Young people, I cannot stress this enough. Get ready. Parents, it's coming. This afternoon, we're going to discuss some some evidences and historical bases for God and Christ outside of the Bible. But why would we do that? Why do I need to know that there's historical evidence behind Christ? Why do I need proof that there's a God. I've read the Bible. I believe it. I know that Jesus lived. Ethan, I've been saved. I've obeyed the gospel call. I'm a Christian and I know the truth. You know, I thought the exact same thing going into that man's office. On that day, I met one of the most biblically intelligent people I've ever seen. He could quote scripture before I could even turn to it. He'd tell me the verse after the verse before. had most of the Bible memorized and that man was a devout atheist. It did not matter what verses I used, what diagrams, what statistics I tried to show him. He just didn't care what the Bible had to say. He didn't believe it, didn't consider it as truth. This then shifted me towards a more scientific mindset. That is what you young people heading to college are about to face. Once again, I pray not this extreme. So this afternoon, we are going to discuss how to combat this situation and what to say when you do encounter that atheist and when your faith is being attacked. I want to start, uh, make sure before starting this study this afternoon, we realize one thing. Christianity is not a blindly based faith. Rather, Christianity is a 
faith built on evidence. <clears throat> you know, I was very blessed to grow up in a, in a very good Christian home like most of you were. And I always had a very good knowledge of the scriptures. I say very good, probably decent knowledge of the scriptures. But my dad also made sure I knew why I was doing everything I was doing. He gave me the reasons behind why we were doing this. Let me take a second to explain that. Imagine this professor looks at me and throws an objection at Christianity. And I stare back at him and say, well, that's what dad says is right. That's what dad tells me is the truth. You see, kids today... In today's society, you're hit with so many false doctrines, so many skeptics to Christianity. And frankly, there's a problem in the church. Kids and young adults today don't even know why they're Christians. Some kids, not all. They're raised in the church, go to church three times a week. But I believe parents fail their kids when you don't teach them the evidences behind your faith. You see, this is the importance of teaching our youth today and the evidences behind God and the truth of Christianity. Because if you don't tell them why you know the Bible is true and why you know there is a God, someone else will explain to your kids why there is no God and why Christianity is false. This afternoon, I've taken some parts out of a larger apologetic study I put together when discussing this topic with that professor. And we're going to take a, look, take a few moments to look at some of the evidences behind Christianity. This afternoon, I'd like to start out with a couple of theme verses. Number one comes from the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 13, the Bible reads this, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But then if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer for every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that they falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And then again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, teaches us to prove all things and hold fast that which is good. So what are we talking about this afternoon? Obviously, we're talking about defending the faith, proving all things, and giving a reason why we believe what we believe. We're going to discuss apologetics this afternoon. What is apologetics? Apologetics is defined as reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, typically a theory or a religious doctrine. Obviously, we have two sides to Christian apologetics, number one being theism, belief in one God as the creator of the universe, intervening in it, and sustaining a personal relation to his creatures. And then, of course, atheism is disbelief or lack of belief in the existence of a God, or simply not theism. To focus our study for this afternoon, I've narrowed it down to four different questions we're going to cover. Number one being, is evolution possible? Number two, if evolution is impossible, how do we know there's a God? Number three, did Jesus actually walk the earth? And then number four, is the Bible eyewitness testimony and something we should follow? Obviously, there's a lot of evidences, and I promise you I'm not going to touch on every single one of them. I do not have days to do that, but we will touch on a few evidences this afternoon. But I do want to stress that these four questions are four questions I've narrowed this study down to in the flow of the discussions with that professor's. There were plenty of questions and points of debate that I did not include in today's study because the scientific attack to Christianity is always changing. 
The first thing we're going to look at this afternoon is, is evolution possible? Again, this professor did not care what the Bible said. He didn't care what truths I tried to show him from the Bible. He just didn't care. This forced me to get outside of my comfort zone, forced me to go into the realm of science and look at science because he didn't care about the Bible. And I was arguing with a guy who held a PhD in the subject. So let's take a look at what science says about life. You see, the evolutionist argument first claims that all life started in deep sea hydrothermal vents and formed amoebas into what we are today. I can tell you first and foremost, this is one of the biggest and most ridiculous claims an evolutionist can make, which is their entire argument, and I'll tell you why. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the laws of nature. Some of those laws are called the laws of thermodynamics. You might remember the first law of thermodynamics saying energy cannot be created and energy cannot be destroyed. In other words, the energy of the universe is constant. But often we overlook this second law on the board here. It says the state of entropy of the entire universe as an isolated system will always increase. I like to dumb things down. It's basically entropy has to increase. That's a law of nature. You see, there's a couple ways to increase entropy. But the most common way you see on the board is going from order to disorder. Again, going from order to disorder. If you want proof of that, clean your child's room. Three days later, it's dirty. The universe goes from order to disorder. <clears throat> Evolutionists claim life started as amoebas and has gotten more evolved and become more complex into humans that we are today. In other words, going from disorder and amoeba into a human more complex into order. This violates the second law of thermodynamics, meaning evolution is impossible, not according to the book, not according to the Bible, not according to me, but according to science. You know, another big assumption evolutionists will try to claim is this idea of abiogenesis. We know biogenesis, which is life, coming from life, but abiogenesis claims life can arise from non-life. It was invented or, or coined by a man named Aristotle. I think Michael had a quote by him this morning. Uh, but we're just going to focus on this yellow part that says, therefore, living things form quickly whenever this air and vital heat are enclosed in anything. When they're so enclosed, the corporal liquid's being heated, there arises, as it were, a frothy bubble. You know what he's saying there? Life can arise from non-life. You can get something from nothing is what Aristotle is claiming. This idea of a biogenesis was disproved in a series of experiments conducted by four microbiologists. First guy was a name Francisco Reddy. His experiment involved three jars. You see these three jars, he left two of them covered. One had a cork, one had gauze, one was open. Flies would come in there and they couldn't reach obviously the cork or the gauze, but they could get into the first jar and lay life. So he looked at this and said, see, unless you have life laying the maggots or laying the larvae, there was no possible way life could arise, meaning spontaneous generation is impossible. Second experiment was by a guy named John Needham. John Needham came in with this flask and he took this, this broth, this mixture, and he heated it. He heated that flask until all microbes were dead. And when he heated that flask, he left it open. And when he left it open, microbial growth appeared. So Needham was more on the side of the argument for spontaneous generation. He said, look, I killed everything, and now life has appeared. And obviously, you can see the flaw in that argument. We saw in the first experiment, if the cap is open, life can appear. So next, Lazaro Spallanzani came in. 
And he said, he came in here and put the cork on top and showed that life could not arise. Obviously, spontaneous generation being impossible. And then lastly, I'm not going to spend too much time on this one, but Louis Pasteur, you know him from the pasteurization of milk, came in and used an S-shaped flask and basically took out and eliminated all possible variables and showed that unless the cap was open on number two there, life could not appear. You see, when we consider the evolution argument against the presence of a creator, their argument completely falls apart. Spontaneous generation is this absurd theory that evolutionists have to take that can be easily disproved by their own science. So why would they use such a theory? Why would they make an assumption they know to be false? And I'll tell you, the answer is very simple. When you try to take God out of the equation for life, these are the kind of leaps you have to make. These are the kind of terrible conclusions you have to base your entire life on. And I like a quote by a man named Frank Turek. He says, this is why we don't have enough faith to be atheist. Obviously, there are plenty more evidences you see on the board and ideas you can use to disprove evolution, such as irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity is, is basically states that in a single complex system, uh, if, if any one part of that system is removed, the entire system will fail. You can take, for example, your human cell. You could reduce a human cell down to a number of parts, but eventually if you remove one of those parts, that human cell will lice or that human cell will die meaning animals and microbes are not irreducibly complex and cannot possibly evolve into another thing. Carbon dating at the bottom there, if you talk about carbon-12 carbon and the carbon-14 isotopes, if you take those, they have to have the exact same ratio through all of life for carbon dating to be used. And by the way, this is not on my notes, but carbon dating can only go back 75,000 years. Uh, so saying that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old using carbon dating is bad science in and of itself. Uh, but the fossil record is also something to consider uh, with its fault coming in with the lack of transitional fossils. Uh, you've probably all seen the monkey going to the human, or we've seen fish going to a human, and that's how they claim evolution happened. I have never seen half fish half man. I don't know if any of you had. If you have, I'd like to see it. Uh, but I have never seen a half fish, half man. So the transitional fossils are not possible and they're not, have not been found. But this afternoon, I decided not to focus solely on how to beat professors or how to defeat professors because that's not what this study is about. This study is not about teaching you how to battle your professors or peers, but about the evidences behind Christianity. We must realize this afternoon our purpose on this earth is to spread the gospel and not to win arguments. And to be honest with you, I've, I've caught myself falling into that trap at times. <clears throat> so we have taken a few moments this afternoon to disprove this idea of evolution and spontaneous generation. But how do we know there actually is a God that created the universe and it's not some other scientific explanation? How do we know there is a God at all? I believe one of the easiest ways to show how you can have faith that there is a God is to simply understand the complexity of our universe. I know Timothy has talked about this before. First off, Earth is exactly the correct size which allows us to have an atmosphere. If it were any smaller or any larger, atmosphere would be impossible, meaning UV light penetration would kill us all. The Earth is also the correct distance from the sun. 
If the Earth was to the negative 120th power further or closer from the sun, we would either die or be freezed up. Negative 120th power is a, zero, or a decimal with 119 zeros behind it before you get to a number. That's how infinitesimally small that number is. You see, this amount of fine-tuning cannot happen by random chance. <clears throat> this number was so small when talking about that, not to mention the other countless variables that account for life, that number is way too small to even discuss. I found the number. I could not explain what the number was or what it meant, so I didn't include it in the presentation, but it was very small. But another thing to discuss is how the moon controls the tides and it controls how the water balances to allow continents to exist. And then, of course, water is the last thing on this slide. You see, water has a pH of 7. pH, if you don't remember from chemistry, is on a scale of 1 to 14, meaning 7 is the median or middle number, meaning it is perfectly chemically balanced. This means water is the perfect molecule to sustain life. But after looking at all these, you may say, well, you know, that's pretty cool to talk about the complexity of the universe. It's pretty interesting. It may be kind of hard to argue that there isn't a God, but it doesn't really show me there's a God. But, you know, there's another theory pointing towards the existence of a God, and that's the theory of general relativity. This theory was invented by a man named Albert Einstein when attempting to prove how all things in the universe were relative to one another. One idea that Einstein accidentally proved when looking at this theory was that if anything is going to be created, space, matter, and time has to come into existence at once. There's also another law of causation or the law of cause and effect, which says if anything is created, there has to be a cause. So this means something had to cause our universe to be created. And that cause of our universe could not have been created itself thus to not cause a causation loop. This is where we get this idea of the uncaused first cause. So if something is going to create space, matter, and time, that being would have to exist outside of space, matter, and time. You see, God perfectly fits the criteria for this law. We see he's eternal, omnipotent, and omnipresent, meaning he is outside of space, matter, and time, therefore being the uncaused first cause. You see, uh, you might say, well, for anything to be created, space, matter, and time has to come into existence at once. He created the heavens and the earth. He did it in six days, space, matter, and time. But let's discuss one of the greatest scientific discoveries of this era, you and I. You see, DNA single-handedly proves the existence of a creator and shows the mark of intelligent design. DNA is made up of adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thiamine. All of these base pairs code together for each of us. They make us who we are. This DNA is a sequence that controls your body and how your cells function together to make you. But you might ask, you know, how does that show evidence of a creator? You see, if we took a bowl of alphabet cereal, this again comes from a man named Frank Turek, but if we took a bowl of alphabet cereal, and you were eating that bowl of alphabet cereal, and you say, well, I need a napkin. So we're going to walk away and go get a napkin. And we come back, and that bowl of alphabet cereal has been knocked on the floor. You look at that bowl of alphabet cereal on the floor, and it says, take out the trash. Would you say that bowl of alphabet cereal randomly 
got there? Did that code randomly spell? Or was that something that came from an intelligent designer? <clears throat> you would say, well, it's, it's impossible for it to spill like that. But I want you to know this afternoon, that's exactly what you would have to believe if you take God out of the equation. You see, most of us have this thing called common sense logic. And we look down at that bowl of alphabet cereal and say, of course, it's not random chance. It's an intelligent creator, my mom. So when we look at DNA, there is only one answer, an intelligent creator, your almighty heavenly father. Before moving on from science, I want to read a passage for you that perfectly sums up the scientific evidence. Psalms 139, verse 13 through 16 says this, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, that thy, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book were all my members written which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. This perfectly sums up the idea of intelligent design. You see, we were made in the like image of God, and DNA can only point towards an intelligent designer. So far we have discussed this faulty theory of evolution, the theory of intelligent design and evidence for a creator. But how do we know this man named Jesus actually existed? How do we know he actually came to this earth and this wasn't some big hoax or some big conspiracy? At this point, you may be sitting in your pew saying, why in the world is he going from science into Bible? And I can tell you the answer is very simple. You see, when I first met with that professor we talked about earlier, <clears throat> he didn't want to discuss Bible. All he wanted to discuss was science and facts. All he cared about was the natural view of the world. But as soon as science disproved his own science, you know what he did? He attacked my faith, and he attacked Christianity. So let's look at the evidences for Christianity. You see, all four Gospels make the same central claim. You can see it on the board, saying Jesus was the Son of God, and that he came to die for our sins. We find this in the beginning of Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But how do we know these guys who wrote these Gospels, these so-called apostles, who wrote these books are actually telling the truth. How do we know Jesus is actually real and this wasn't just some conspiracy? You see, for anyone to hold a conspiracy, it's very difficult, especially if the conspirators are separated after the time of the conspiracy. So let's give an example. Imagine everyone in here is asked to hold a conspiracy about a specific person. That specific person in this room can do the same thing Jesus could, miracles and rise from the dead. You were told to hold this conspiracy to try and undermine other religions of today or overthrow governments, whatever your reasoning is behind it. I then separate each of you across multiple continents, multiple countries, multiple states. You lose any communication or direct contact for over 30 years and someone comes, on, comes and knocks on your door and says, I'm going to kill you if you don't take back what you said about that specific person. If you don't tell me the truth and deny that he could do it, you're dead right here. I can tell you, I'd be completely honest. I'd look at him and say, no, that was a joke. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea. I, I'd tell him not to kill me. Don't kill me. I'll, I'll deny it right now because it wasn't true. But let's say, for instance, you know, I say, you know what? I'll die for this. 
I look at them and say, of course that specific person could do it. But what about every one of you? The chances that every single person in this room would take that conspiracy to their death is near innumerable. <clears throat> you know, when researching this topic, I decided to give my dad a call. As some of you may know, my dad is a homicide investigator, or he was, for 17 years. He worked countless murder cases, robberies, you name it. When asked about conspiracies, my dad informed me of the importance of keeping the validity of the witnesses or the suspects. He told me when him and his partner would get two witnesses or two suspects, they would immediately separate those two suspects to avoid any conspiracy. Over every single one of his cases, when separating the suspects, when using this method, he obtained a 95% confession rate. And keep in mind, my dad did not torture, beat, or kill any suspects to get information. He had this confession rate, this 95% confession rate, by playing mind games. These apostles were beaten and killed, and not a single one of them denied anything. You see, Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. History says it's actually a pretty humbling story. He says he didn't want to be killed in the like manner of his Savior. Andrew was crucified in Asia Minor. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was beaten with rods and then beheaded. James was killed by King Herod. You can find that in Acts 12. Simon was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. And then John, of course, was the only one that survived. He was banished to the island of Patmos. You see, when you look at the potential death toll of Christians of that time, the gruesome deaths of every apostle except for John, there is no room for conspiracy. Once again, statistics, the probability that every one of these guys died for something they didn't even believe in is innumerable. This is why we can say we, have, we can have certainty that Christ actually lived and he died on the cross. And this wasn't just some conspiracy. So let's say, for instance, just speculating at this point, that somehow these so-called apostles of that day did hold a conspiracy. Not to mention the other 500 people Paul describes as seeing the resurrected Jesus in the book. I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I forgot to include it in this presentation. How would we then decide if Jesus actually was a real man and this was not just some conspiracy? Well, historians who examine these ancient texts would tell you, well, we need to cross-reference. We need to look at other articles outside of these conspirators to see if he actually existed. So what does history say about it? In a text by Josephus, he says, At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to, to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets had recounted wonders. You say, well, maybe one text isn't enough. So let's look at the annals of Cornelius to Sidus. Tosidus said this, Therefore, to Scots the rumor, Nero substituted his culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men, loath for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty and the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator, Pontius Pilate. And a pernicious superstition that was checked for the moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the deceased, 
but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vote. You see, both of these sources account for this man named Christ, or Christus as he's referred to on the board. And he's mentioned by both Josephus and Tacitus as being put to death by Pontius Pilate, which is both historically and biblically accurate. But the kicker to these two passages is that neither Tacitus or Josephus was a Christian. These two men would have absolutely no reason to lie about Jesus, to create some religion. These two men were simply historians that just recorded what happened. There are many other ways. I don't have the time to to discuss this afternoon, but many ways to prove the existence of Christ and many other outside references to this man in history. But overall, you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find anyone that would disagree that Christ was actually a historical figure and that he actually lived. So the last question for consideration this afternoon is a question regarding the validity of the eyewitnesses and the accuracy of the translational Bible we have in our hand. I've heard plenty of arguments against the Bible, the translational problems with passing from scribe to scribe, and many other things. There's people that even say, well, if if Jesus was a Nazarene, he may have spoken Hebrew or Aramaic. How could a fisherman translate that into ancient Greek or Koine Greek? So how do we know this Bible that we have in our hands is actually telling the truth? First of all, when we look at ancient texts, we discuss the purpose for writing the text. So let's apply this to the Gospels. They were all written to different people and contained different details. Matthew wrote to the Jews, Mark to the Romans, Luke to the Gentiles, and of course John to new believers. But why is this significant? Well, when you discuss the possibility of a conspiracy we were talking about earlier, the fact that all four Gospels wrote to different groups of people, yet all followed the same uniform pattern in a chronological order of the events that happened, you can say with certainty these Gospels are true. Not to mention the writers of these Gospels were separated and very far apart from one another when they were writing these Gospels. Another test that can be done to check the validity of ancient documents is this theory of embarrassing information. You know, if you were to write a story this afternoon of exactly what happened during your high school time, what would you include? I can tell you I would talk about football. I would discuss my grades, my friends, my acceptance to a university, all those good things that happened about me. I certainly wouldn't put anything that made me look any kind of negative. But if I did, you would say, well, he cares more about recounting the truth than he does about making himself look good. So let's apply this to the New Testament. We find in the New Testament that Peter denied Christ. We find in Mark, the fourth chapter, the disciples are afraid of the storm. And then, of course, we see later Judas is told that the betrayer was among them and still went out and betrayed Christ. You see, that's embarrassing stuff. If I was told by someone that I was going to deny Christ or even turn over Christ, you know what I'd do? Everything in my power not to deny Christ. It's logical, right? You wouldn't want to do something somebody told you were going to do. If I certainly wouldn't record it for you to hear about it, you wouldn't know about that through history. But the apostles did include this, this embarrassing information, meaning their gospels can be counted as truth. Another thing to discuss outside of biblical evidence is called manuscripts. 
Manuscripts are, are copies of a document or the original document itself from ancient history. When we look at this chart, you can see things such as Caesar's Gallic Wars containing 10 manuscripts within 1,000 years of it occurring. The closest number we see in the New Testament at the bottom, of course, is the Iliad by Homer containing 643 copies within 400 years. And then, of course, at the bottom, you find the New Testament rolling in with 5,300 copies, 5,400 uh, within 50 years after the dates of the New Testament. You see, using manuscript evidence compared to other ancient texts, one would be hard-pressed to find the Bible was not actually eyewitness testimony. There are way more manuscripts dated within the dates than any other ancient text in history. <clears throat> Lastly, this afternoon, I want to point out some of the evidence for a complementary system within the Gospels, and I'll show you what I mean by that. In Mark, the first chapter, verse 16, the Bible reads, Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. So for a second, I want you to forget everything you know about the Gospels and just look at this passage. It sounds kind of funny, right? This guy walks up to fishermen and says, hey, come with me. We're going to go fish men. Sounds kind of weird, right? Why would they follow a man who told them to fish after men? But we see this question answered in Luke, the fifth chapter. Luke, the fifth chapter, starting verse five, says, And Simon answered, said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they, began, and they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And here Jesus says unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. You see, the question that Mark poses, or not really poses, the question we ask from Mark is why would they follow a man who told them to fish men? But we see this question unintentionally answered in the book of Luke by the writer Luke. You see, just by reading through some of the Gospels, some text will leave a question unanswered while another, question, or another text will answer that question unintentionally. This pattern of complementary evidence proves that all Gospels were eyewitness testimony that is undisputable, indisputable, and undeniable in today's world, meaning the Bible is the absolute truth and word of God. This afternoon, we've discussed four different points, beginning with, is evolution possible? Is there a God? Was Jesus real? And finally, is the Bible truth? We discussed many different points on apologetics, but I want you to know I've barely scratched the surface on many topics regarding the apologetics. The things I've discussed this afternoon were just some of the things that I discussed with this professor. You see, apologetics is ever-changing and is never the same argument. I, I say that. Science is never the same argument. You see, what I'm discussing now may not be the same thing in 10 years. To give you an example, how many of us learned Big Bang? I'm sure most of us has heard Big Bang or learned the Big Bang theory in school. I guarantee you most of you did. I can tell you nowadays in academia, nobody really cares 
about the Big Bang. But why is that? Well, when you ask, what does the Big Bang prove? You know what it proves? The universe is finite and the universe had a beginning. And if the universe had a beginning, there had to be a cause, meaning Big Bang simply just points towards an intelligent designer or a creator. You see, science is always coming up with new ideas and new theories trying to prove the origins of life and why Christianity is false. But there is one thing parents can always take comfort in. God's word, the truth, never changes. God's word has and will continuously blow away all these scientific theories that will just be replaced by another. I want to talk to the parents for a second this afternoon before I close. You can see how this information and these theories can be kind of intimidating, and I can tell you they are. Most of your children may have to fight these battles on their own, may have to discuss apologetics or why Christianity is true on their own without mom and dad holding their hand. I understand this information can be very confusing and it's difficult to understand even as parents, but I'm here to tell you, you don't have to know all the answers. You know, I remember just coming home while all this was going on and just seeing my mom and dad was a real relief. My dad was never really a science guy. If you want to know how to interrogate someone, get information, clear a house, he's probably your guy. But science is not his thing. But the beautiful thing about that is he recognized it. He knew he wouldn't understand the science I was researching. But you know what he did do? He always prayed for me. He prayed for my situation, my strength, my safety, my knowledge. He prayed that I would have the strength to keep the faith and stand strong in the faith. He would send me encouraging texts and verses to get me through the day. You see, I stand up here with all this information, and it may seem like I knew the answers or the, the arguments going into it, but the truth is, I didn't. It may look like I, I went through all this alone at, in College Station, but the truth is, I didn't. My mom and dad were always there to help in any way possible. Parents, before I close, I want to show you just how important maintaining this relationship with your child and reminding them of the evidences behind Christianity is. If you look on the board, you can see a sample of statistics taken from colleges. Number one was actually said by Brother Jameson at the area-wide meeting, I guess is what we're calling it. 70% uh, of college students will abandon their faith. 25% of professors are true atheists. This one's the most astonishing. 6% of professors believe the Bible is the word of God. 51% of professors believe the Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, and moral precepts. And then lastly, 75% of professors believe religion should not be involved in public universities and schools. You see, this is why that relationship and taking an active role in strengthening your child's faith is so important. The study this afternoon, again, was not to teach you how to win arguments, but a reminder of the evidences for Christianity and the importance of teaching your children the same. This afternoon, I began by discussing this flaw of a biogenesis or life coming from non-life and the failure of evolutionists and atheists to, to explain the cause of life. You see, that, that problem is the missing link in their argument. This missing link destroys their entire argument. The professor I was discussing this with, was, was point, I was pointing out that flaw, that missing link, and he looked at me and said, Ethan, Christianity has to have a missing link. Christianity cannot be the answer for life. 
You see, 2,000 years ago, a man was separated from God. Mankind was lost, mankind needed a mediator, and mankind needed a savior. You see, any one of us could have died on the cross. Any one of us could have taken the beating, but only one of us could fulfill all the prophecies. Only our Savior. You see, the empty tomb proves that Christ was not just an ordinary man. It proves Christ was the Son of God. This afternoon, if you consider how many people were against, were against Christianity back in that day, it's easy to see how Christ was so influential. You see, all they had to do around 33 AD to stop Christianity in its track, to completely shut down our faith, you know what they had to do? Produce the dead body of Jesus Christ. Imagine I'm Peter up here presenting a gospel message about the death, burial, and of course the resurrection. And you're listening to me and a Roman soldier walks in that back door and lays the dead body of Christ down at my feet. You see, that would have completely destroyed Christianity. It would have shut it down. We would not be here today. You see, the missing link in atheism destroys their entire faith. Christianity does not have a missing link. We have a savior and we have a sacrifice. We have a Savior who came to this earth to take the punishment for us. A Savior who died on the cross so we don't have to.